Welcome to Sideline Sleuths, a true crime podcast all about the tragic yet fascinating cases no one can seem to get enough of. I'm Megan. And I'm Jasmine. We're so glad you're listening. If you like being an armchair detective, you'll love being a Sideline Sleuth. Okay, so a couple of months ago, I read this book called The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer by Liza Rodman. And oh my gosh, you guys are obviously all true crime fans or you wouldn't be here, but you need to go read that book. It is about a serial killer who I had never heard of. And that's pretty uncommon for me because I'm really into them. You're a murder historian. Yes. Oh yeah, that's my new title. (laughs) So I read this book in a couple hours and then I was like, I have to tell people about this. So that's what we're doing today. Today I am telling you about the murders committed by a man named Tony Costa in the mid to late 1960s in the The Cape Cod area. I know. Not to be confused with Antonio Luis Costa, the Portuguese serial killer born in the early 1950s who was convicted in 2007 for the murders of three women in the early 2000s. So. Right. Well, Tony Costa's. Strike it out. Here's what we know. Tony killed, like, eight women between 1966 and 1969. He was employed, married, and fathered children during this time period. And the people close to him had no idea that he was a serial killer. He got... We're going to put an asterisk after that, because, like, some of it y'all should have seen coming. But he got caught in a really careless way, because, you know, like most of them, they make some kind of mistake that leads to their capture... And that's what he did. But, like, I think on some level, even if it's subconsciously, a lot of serial killers want to get caught. Maybe for, like, notoriety, but, like, they they want the credit for what they did. And I don't know if Tony wanted to get caught. I truly think he never thought that he, he just would. got, like, really arrogant. He was so arrogant. Yes. He really, I think he never thought he would be caught. And had he not done this one thing, it's possible that he never would have. He could have eluded detection and potentially continued to murder women for years and years, maybe even the rest of his life, if it wasn't for this. So his victims were Patricia Walsh, Marianne Wysocki, Susan Perry, Sidney Monzen, Bonnie Williams, Diane Federoff, and Christine Gallant. Not necessarily in that order. However, before we dive into the crimes... Let's talk a little bit about Tony as a person and his backstory leading up to becoming the Cape Cod killer. Tony was born Anton Charles Costa on August 2nd, 1944, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Cecilia Costa. His dad, also named Anton Costa, was in the Navy Reserves but died a few months before his son was born. Before Tony's first birthday, Cecilia became pregnant by another man in the summer of 1946, So, Tony wasn't yet two years old when his little brother Vinny was born. At some point in his early years, he became obsessed with learning every detail of his father's life, his military service, and ultimately his death. At the age of seven, he started telling his mother that a man was visiting him at night and talking to him. After seeing a photo of his father, he announced that that was the guy he had been seeing. Oh my... So he was like a little off pretty early. What would you do? What's my kids at that? I would drop kick my son. No, oh, I would not terrible. do that. I would just be like, you need therapy. So, but oh, if Brogan came up so, to me and told me he was seeing people talk to him and I knew it was a dead person, I would, I would hide. You know, I'd be very I nervous. would hide all the sharp objects in my home. 
I would be like, oh, okay, that's fair. I'd hide pictures, but that's his dad. Never mind. <laughs> a friend from his childhood named Frank described Tony as being, quote unquote, inside himself, saying that it was like Tony was not there, even though he was. Cecilia, Tony, like, what does that even mean, right? Sounds like he's just describing an introvert, but <laughs> we know how it turns out, so maybe not. Cecilia, Tony, and Vinny would spend the summers in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where Cecilia's sister lived. They lived in Somerville, I think, but Provincetown is a community at the tip of Cape Cod. The 2010 census puts its population at just under 3,000, but its summer population can skyrocket to like 60,000. So it's a tourist area for sure with a lot of people in and out. Cecilia would clean motel rooms in the summers there. At some point in his youth... Tony bought a taxidermy kit from a Sears catalog. And it is like a general consensus that a precursor to serial killer, like dumbism, whatever. Why do we let this be a hobby still? Like, I know some people are doing it and it's like above the, you know, above But like, the that's board. like a huge red flag. If you are killing or mutilating animals first, you're probably going to kill I people. Just, I don't understand why this is still a hobby thing. It's never good. Frank said that he witnessed Tony kill and disembowel numerous small animals, but that he never actually saw him produce a taxidermy trophy from these And that's kills. when you stop buying him the kids. Yeah, I think he bought him the himself. Supplies. I don't know. We got to hide a lot of stuff from this little kid. Years later, it was reported that neighbors had several pets, mainly cats, go missing during the years <gasps> that the would have coincided cat? with Tony being a young man in that area. But his brother Vinny thinks this is all crap, and there's no way he could have killed people or been that kind. I don't know. But he was generally thought to be handsome, popular, and gifted academically. The principal at one of his schools described him as a gentleman who was kind and polite, and classmates would later go on to describe him as cool, confident, and going after anything he wanted. So what I'm going to tell you next is also not uncommon in the history of childhoods of people who grew up to be murderers. But I'm not telling you this as an excuse or an explanation at all for the horrendous crimes he would later commit. I'm telling you because it was mentioned as something that impacted Tony psychologically. In the summer leading up to his 12th birthday, so I guess that was like 1956, he said that he was lured into a basement by an older local kid, tied up and raped. He would never state publicly the identity of the person who assaulted him, but it's been described as something that quote-unquote, nestled in Tony's psyche. Well, that would traumatize anyone. Yeah. In Somerville in 1961, a neighborhood girl named Donna gave Tony a key to her house. Girl? I'm not really sure the backstory there, but presumably she had a crush on him and she wanted him to be able to come over when her parents, like, weren't around. Oh, girl, I put all those puzzle pieces together, but I was still shocked. (laughs) One night, she woke up to find Tony standing over her bed. She screamed and he fled, and... I don't know if it was a different night or perhaps like the same one, but she said she woke up to find him in her bedroom fondling her through her nightgown. Are you for real? He tried again? It could have been the same night, but I was just like a, it was another thing she later said. So I don't know if it was two instances or if it was the same evening, but a couple days after that, it's reported that he dragged her into his basement. (gasps) She resisted and he slapped her across the face. She told her parents about this and then told them about the night that he touched her through her dress. And he was arrested and charged with assault and battery and breaking and entering with the intent to commit a felony, which would have been like sexual assault or rape. He was convicted on both charges and given a one-year suspended sentence and three years of probation. 
After that happened, Cecilia and the boys moved to Provincetown instead of just going there in the summers. Gotcha. Remember when I said, like, nobody knew he'd be a serial killer, but then I said, like, asterisk? Um, I, I think that's because, like, you have to be, like, really certain of this before you accuse somebody of that. But, like, I don't, I don't know. There are certain people you could, like, never imagine doing something horrendous. And then there are other people, like, ones who maybe murder and disembowel animals for fun that you think, like, mm, maybe it's in their wheelhouse. Like, it's not like it was com- super so far-fetched. Perfect. Yeah. Like, there's some people you would just, like, absolutely not. And then other people you're like, well, he did try to rape his neighbor, so maybe he's a murderer. I don't know. Okay. So I see where you're going there. Tony was weird, to be honest. Uh, weeks away from graduating, he started dating an eighth grade girl named Avis. <gasps> so Avis's mom, understandably so, thinks this is wrong. This is what? So she was like 13 and he was like 17. Yeah, that's not cool. So Tony wanted to marry her, but Avis's mom wasn't having it. So to get around that, he purposely got Avis pregnant <gasps> so that her mom would allow them to get married. So, she gets married and gives birth to her first child all before turning 15. Aww, baby. And their marriage was rocky. I mean, he was married to a child. Money was tight. Um, and he ended up thinking, like, maybe I'm not cut out for this husband-father life after all. Surprise, surprise. So, he he was working a variety of jobs, like plumbing and carpentry and construction. And Avis is staying home because they have a small child. And it's been reported that he had demanding and unrealistic housekeeping standards and that no matter what she did, he was never satisfied. So She's a kid. I'll cut this story short and tell you that basically he was a jerk and she reported that he hit her and their baby on more than one occasion. So. The baby? The baby. Tony's partying and things are volatile and, but that doesn't prevent them from welcoming their second child when Tony was 20 and Avis was 16. At some point, like, in that time frame, he starts seeing a counselor who begins prescribing him medicine. And also in that same time frame, he starts murdering young women. What? Yeah, right? It's just like a, have your second baby, get on some medicine, not Accutane, and start killing people. (laughs) I'm never going to, like, every episode, I'm going to be like, and then he was it Accutane. Yeah, so they honestly, that's who we should get to sponsor us because <laughs> yeah. we are name dropping them a lot. So it's believed that Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff are Tony's first two victims. He met them in the spring of 1966. The story goes that the girls wanted a ride to California. He met them in a tavern in Provincetown, and I think they were like 16 or something. So when he met them, they were hungry, they were broke and tired and in need of a bath. Apparently, they were runaways from Florida and had somehow made it all the way up to Massachusetts. So, Tony offers to let these girls stay at his apartment with Avis and the kids. And as weird as that is, it didn't last long. Tony was already partying and abusing drugs, and he wanted to go west, and so did they. So, I feel like I'm saying reportedly a lot, and that's because Tony doesn't really, like, offer up information about his interactions with these victims. So... The story's kind of written like like a story almost. like Because he didn't tell you that he did this. It's just like people piecing it together. So these events took place in the 60s. And not to be a spoiler, but Tony's been dead for like a super long time. So reportedly seems like the most honest way for me to tell you. Because Tony never said he did this. But okay. So in the book I read that sparked my interest in Tony's life. 
It said that the trio made it at least to Arizona, where their car overheated. Was he just left Avis and a baby? Yeah, Avis was like, I want these girls out of my apartment. So he was like, perfect. I've been meaning to go get high in California anyway. So they get all the way to Arizona before their car starts acting up. And we know this because an Arizona highway patrolman helps them out. He ends up like giving him a water jug to cool his car down or whatever. And there were three people at the time that this happened. But less than a week later, Tony's back in Provincetown without the girls. He tells people that he only ended up taking them to Pennsylvania and... The yeah, detective test determined that, that was, was a lie. lie. But then he told other people that he actually drove them all the way to San Francisco. So neither version has been confirmed, but we know that they made it all the way to at least Arizona. And we also know that no one ever saw Bonnie or Diane ever again after that. So Tony starts abusing more drugs given to him by his doctor. And he also starts experimenting with other drugs more recreationally. Also around the same time, he starts telling people that he's done some horrible things and they wouldn't understand. And he starts blaming his behavior on someone else. Just saying things like really vaguely, like, that wasn't me. That was this other guy. Like, I don't know. It was weird. I dated this guy in high school once who used to do that. that visits me? Oh, sorry. sorry. Not, no, not his dead dad. But I dated this guy in high school when he was drinking a lot. He would always, like, blame it on, like, an alter ego almost. Like Sasha Fierce? <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, no, not really. Um, but he was just saying somebody. <laughs> like Roman and Nicki Minaj. That's that's the first one I thought was Roman and Nicki Minaj. Okay, this is why we're friends. So, so he's like, he's not like creating like a fake persona. He's just like redirecting blood, dissociating. So, yeah. So in the spring of 1967, his doctor gives him a new prescription, and the side effects for that include hallucinations and mania. And then he also starts going to his primary care doctor. And he's getting different medicine from that guy. And this is, like, I guess before, like, CVS was, was cross-checking pharmacies. So he's, 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 there's some drug interactions, I guess. And he also starts selling these drugs in Provincetown. There's just no cap on his Nothing. refills. Like, he's hustling out here. So he's also, like, I don't know. I don't do drugs. So is it taking LSD or using LSD? You doing me, LSD? I'm an innocent. I, I know not. I'm an innocent. So anyway, <laughs> You're going to have to Google that. He's doing something with LSD. And he's... He's doling out pharmaceuticals, and he's also starting to grow weed in the woods. I think it's dropping it. Is it dropping it? Sure. There we go. Okay. Oh, I'm an innocent, but you just uh, no, no. That's for movies, that girl. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So he's. I watched. I read. Uh, go ask Alice. Librarian plus. I yes, I've read that actually, um, and I still forgot the dropping part. So, so there's LSD, there's pharmaceuticals, and there's weed in the woods, and he also starts hanging out with a group of people. Much younger than him. Yeah, interrupt me when you said he had weed in the woods. Start again? What? <laughs> so he's getting pharmaceuticals from his right. doctors. He's experimenting with LSD. And he's also growing a lot of weed in the woods. <laughs> so. Okay, and, he just seems like a weird guy, like you said. Yeah, he's, yeah, and he has a taxidermy kid. And his girl, his wife's this guy's a, the worst. a child. So um, he starts hanging out with these people much younger than him. And it feels kind of culty because they start calling him Lord Anton. He calls the boys in this group his disciples, and he calls the girls his kid chicks. How have I not heard of this? Is very I know, right? Like, it's weird. So, 
he ends up taking this girl, Marsha, into the woods. And she's one of these, quote-unquote... What quote, does he unquote, teach the disciples? How to grow weed in the woods? Yes. I don't know. Has there um, been anything... Ad- okay. So he takes Marsha into the woods. And they're apparently going to just go check on his plants and get high. But Marsha feels something smack her in the middle of her back. And when she turns around, it was an arrow shot from a bow that Tony was holding. This guy's the biggest weirdo ever. He's just carrying around a bow and arrow. So You saw him with a, air, a bow and And you arrow still and went he, into the woods. That's... But it's like, I'm you know, he's her. like preying on That's the, she's, thing, she's a child. She's probably like 13. I don't know. So, okay. Yeah, he obviously has some charisma because he's luring in all these kids. No, like, okay. Whenever, that it's weird. okay. When you were younger, did you ever like have a much older boy like you and you thought it was cool, but really you realized girls his own age knew he was a loser. So that's why he went after, okay. I feel like that's what's happening here. Like okay, definitely people his sure. own age are like, something's up with Tony. So he's like preying on these children who are going to think he's cool because he's older, older and he has an apartment and he can do that it takes to be cool yeah when you're yeah exactly so don't have parents so tony says it was an accident and it actually ricocheted off of like a tree and hit her but that's not how arrows work knowing i actually don't know how arrows work (laughs) or lsd i swear knowing what we know now about tony i'm i don't think it was an accident Marsha would later tell police that she thinks he did it on purpose but just to scare her and nothing more but to me it seems that Marsha probably just got really lucky and the next woman i'm going to tell you about mm, might have got away from tony too so tony is a terrible husband and for some reason he gets a job in new york and it's like after the summer season in cape cod it slowed down and he gets this job and he has like a 45 day probationary period and when that's over he loses the job like whatever but he like makes friends in new york he's there for a little bit so he and Avis are having problems, and he doesn't really want to go back to Provincetown, but he does at least for a little bit. And then he quickly decides he's going to go to California. So he's, like, really stuck in California. Remember, he wanted to take Bonnie and Diane to California, too. So he he goes there, and within a week, he meets this woman named Barbara Spaulding, who has a young son. So, like, he and Avis are, like, separated, I guess. So... He he says that Barbara reminds him of Avis, and like that's what he likes about her, which is creepy. So they go on a date, and within a few days, he moves in with her and her son, Bobby. And at some point, the pair overdoses, and Barbara <gasps> almost dies. And she, does, she doesn't die, but she almost dies. And like right after that, he leaves and goes back to Massachusetts. So... Apparently, he found out that, like, the cops were looking for him because he, like, skipped out on helping with his kids. And, like, they used to care about that, I guess. Like, now they just let you be deadbeats. But they used to care if you weren't supporting your kids. So he goes back to Massachusetts really randomly because he wants to, like, clear things up. And that seems weird. Like, I don't know very many people were like, the police are looking for me. Let me go to them myself. <laughs> They're yeah, like, especially agreed. if you're, like, a sketchy individual. You're going to, like, avoid them. So it seemed like he just really wanted to get out of California. And there are... Some conflicting stories about whatever happens next, but the interwebs say that Tony was the last person to ever see Barbara alive, that she vanished the same day he returned to Massachusetts. And I think this is because police went looking for her in 1969 when the news about Tony's murders came out and they couldn't find her. So they assumed he killed her too. But in the book I read, it said that Barbara actually ended up getting married and having another kid and didn't die until, like, sometime in the 90s. So I didn't list her in the victim list, but... Be- because you think they just couldn't find her. They just couldn't find changed. her. But it's possible, I guess. Like, she had a lot of 
different last names because she was married multiple times. And the internet isn't, like in the 90s when she would have died and before that, isn't what it is today. So it was hard for me to like track her down. So I don't list her as a victim, but there are people who think he did kill her in the 60s. Yeah. So, right, and that would explain his immediate... Immediate wanting to leave. Uh, yeah. So like, all of a sudden, I care about my kids. Yeah, that I dipped out on multiple times. So hmm. one of the... Or he just like, you know, that's, I mean, they overdosed or he, she yeah. overdosed. So that might be scary. Or maybe yeah. he thought she was going to die or I don't know. So and then he's just there with her kid. It, it's hard to like try to explain his behaviors because he's a psycho. So yeah. who knows why he didn't did seem like the type of guy yeah. that would like adopt her kid and like, no. stay there. One of the greatest things about this book is that there's like an index in the back. So I didn't have to reread the book a million times. I only had to read it twice. So the next victim I'm going to tell you about is this girl, 19-year-old Christine Galliant. So Tony had been steadily abusing drugs and he drops a lot of weight and he begins saying that he doesn't recognize himself in the mirror. He also starts referencing an alter ego all around the same time that he met 19-year-old Christine. So I think that's like the summer of 1967. So it's actually, the story starts with Christine before Barbara. So she's from another town in Massachusetts, but she moves to Provincetown right after graduation. And she's dating this other guy in the area who is a lot like Tony with a troublesome reputation. And But Tony, like, sees her and it's like, that's it. Like, him and Avis are separated. So he starts, like, pursuing Christine really hard. So remember he went to New York at some point he makes friends in New York. Well, Christine ends up moving to New York later too. So she's still dating that other guy and Tony's just going to New York to visit her. According to Tony, they're getting pretty serious, but according to Christine, Tony's scaring her. So friends of Christine would later say that she told them she was afraid for her life and it's just like they're like to- he's like delusional, like they're totally disconnected. Christine thinks that her and Raul, the boyfriend, are going to get married, but Tony thinks that him and Christine are going to get married. So in November of 1968, so it's like nine nine months after Barbara might have died, Christine's roommate finds her dead. <gasps> she was naked and kneeling in a half filled bathtub, face down. Her cause of death was drowning after an overdose, and she had a bruise on her shoulder and multiple cigarette burns on her chest. What? So the story goes that she decided to tell Tony the truth about how serious her relationship was was with this other guy, and then the next day, she's dead. Or she's just like, I don't want to be with you. Either one of those are valid. Okay, sorry. So she tells him... Then he leaves her apartment alone and goes to visit a friend. The friend's like, hey, where's Christine? And he's like, oh, she's sick. That's why she didn't come. And then after that, he leaves New York altogether. He has Avis. So you think, so he goes up to New York just to kind of follow her. Yeah. Gets a quote unquote job. Things don't go well with her. Potentially he murders her. Yeah. And then Ping Pong's California? No, it's like. after Barbara. It's like he goes to New York. He makes some friends in New York. That he goes to California in the middle, and then he goes back to New York. He's okay. He's just ping ponging around the United he's, States because he dipped out on Avis. Every and the girl kids. that runs into him ends yeah. up not Dead. in a good situation. Yeah. So it's like he's in New York visiting her. She tells him about Raúl, the boyfriend. He leaves New York altogether. Christine's. How dead. do we know that she told him about Raúl? I think she told people she was going to tell him about okay, Raúl. So. 
He tells Avis, so he has Avis pick him up from like the bus station or something. Girl, I guess. Avis just say no. And he asks Avis to say that he actually came back from New York a week earlier than he did. And she doesn't ask him why. But then news of Christine's death gets out. And he starts telling people that she killed herself because he tried to break up with her. And she, like, couldn't live without him. Oh, man. He could have made it about anything. But he made it about him. So her death could have been accidental because it's not uncommon for people who are overdosing to get, like, put in a tub of cold water to try to, like, shock them out of it. What's up with the cigarette burns, though, and the bruising? But it doesn't explain why she's kneeling face down. Because that just seems like... The doctor at the time said it was a, quote, uncomfortable and physically awkward. Like, who? no one's positioning themselves like that. And she also has all these bruises and cigarette burns. So all we know is Tony went to New York, Christine dies, Tony leaves, and he asks somebody to lie about the time frame. We don't really know what happened to Christine. All we know is that Tony Costa was the last person to see her alive. He's got a whole lot of story weaving that he's doing. Oh, she's not here because Christine's not here because she's sick. Yeah. Oh, Christine's upset because I broke up with her. I don't want to be with her. She. So it's like a lot of it is like Tony's. We don't know what happens to these girls. Tony's just the last person, right, to be with them. Conveniently, it's convenient. Yeah. So there's this other girl, Sydney who's also from Massachusetts and she graduates in June of 67 and she travels around before ending up in Cape Cod in January of 68. All of these timelines like kind of overlap a little bit. So Tony first sees her waitressing tables at this place called the Pilgrim Club and he immediately shows an interest in her. So people try to warn her to stay away from Tony, but the two were then seen around town, like riding bicycles and holding hands. And she's like 18 and he's 24. In the spring of 1968, the counselor, doctor, people who are supplying Tony with drugs finally cut him off. And then he robs them. And Sydney is the getaway vehicle. He ends up getting tons of drugs from the doctor's office, like $5,000 worth, which today dollars would be $37,000 worth of drugs. What? So, and then he breaks it. So there's two doctors. There's like the counselor doctor and the family practice doctor. He robs the counselor doctor and gets $37,000 worth of drugs. And then he breaks into the other doctor's car and steals a bag of drugs and a bag of surgical tools. Why did Doctor got the drugs in the car? And it's the sixties. Okay. I feel like yeah. that's my explanation Lucy, for everything. It's the sixties. No. And honestly, yeah. in my brain, I'm like, it was a sixties. <laughs> like I don't Lucy Goosey. Yeah. So serial killers just on the loose. So he he gets cut off from the doctors. They rob the place. And then Sydney's last seen alive on Friday, May 24th, 1968, by her sister Linda. She saw Sydney having an argument with someone sitting in a car, and Sydney was standing outside the car. The next day, her bicycle was found near the employee entrance of her job, but she never showed up for work. Linda said she couldn't be certain, but she was pretty sure that Tony Costa was the person driving that car. Sydney was officially reported missing June 14th. When questioned, Tony said that she went off to Europe because, quote unquote, hippies are like that. Here today, somewhere else tomorrow. So he was we doing the, the story. It's the 60s thing that I just <laughs> Everything's did. Everything's all loosey so, so we have Diane and Bonnie. He gave them a ride. No one ever saw them again. Christine, he goes to hang out with her. She's dead the next day. Sydney and him are robbing doctors, riding bicycles, and okay. then she vanishes. And then maybe Barbara. And then maybe Barbara. So. Now we're going to fast forward to August slash September of 68. So this is a girl named Susan Perry, and she was only 17 at the time of her death. They're all kids. She, yeah, like he has like a, he's like, it's a, it's really predatory, honestly. So 
Susan was one of Tony's kid chicks. Her parents had recently got divorced when she met Tony, and her dad got custody of the six youngest children. And she was the oldest one living at home still. So a lot of those responsibilities fell on her. And she's just kind of over it. And Tony has, like, the party apartment. So she leaves home, and she asks Tony if she can stay at his place. And he agrees, because he's creepy. And they started hooking up. And... One day, while snooping through Tony's things, she finds a gun in his nightstand. She doesn't want to say anything to him about it, but she, like, makes a mental note of it, I guess. But she also can't go home because she's had this falling out with her dad. She's away. Yeah, so she asks some friends to go to her dad's house and get her clothes and bring them to Tony's house. And they do. And these friends say that they last saw Susan and Tony on the porch, and she, like, kissed Tony on the cheek as they drove away, and they never saw her again. Two days later, Tony borrowed a car some tools, and a shovel from some friends. He returned the car, but the tools and shovel were not brought back, and he offered no explanation. Not long after that, he runs into one of Susan's friends that he used to hang out with at, like, the party apartment. Mm -hmm. And the guy's like, hey, how's Susan? And Tony tells her that she ran off to Mexico with a bunch of druggies. He always has a story. And then he hands this guy this ring. And the ring is known to be in Susan's possession, but it's not like a ring that has any significance or sentimental value to Susan, Tony, or this guy. So the guy's like, I don't want this. Like, why would why would oh, Susan want me to have this? And Tony's like, no idea, man. Gotta run. See ya. And leaves. And nobody, like, Susan's a runaway, so nobody, like, knows she's missing yet, I guess. And not to, like, say it again, but it was the 60s. And, like, people... Yeah. Ran away often. This, this was, was like before they even put yeah. missing kids on milk cartons, right? Yeah, and this <laughs> they was, was like, like they're out there somewhere. And Cape Cod is a tourist destination, so there's a lot of people like in and out. So people are coming just as quickly as they're leaving. So you don't really know yeah, who's missing because you don't really know who's supposed to be there. So it's kind of it was easy for him to just explain people's absence, like they just went on to the next destination. Yeah, easy is putting it lightly because he's like weaving like very unlikely tales. Like she ran away to Mexico. She went to she... Europe. It's the sixties. They're in Pennsylvania. She's they're in Arizona. Who knows where she ended up? So. Uh, up until this point, it's just a lot of girls who vanish, and Tony was the last person who saw them. But there's nothing, like, concrete yet. Yeah. Can I just had this thought. Can we talk about how gross the term kid chick is? It's just like, you know, like, if you call the girls, like, chicks. You know, but it's like you're deliberately identifying them as children but they're too, Yeah, it's very, it's he's good. gross. So, the next two people we're going to talk about were not kid chicks, and that's, like, what screwed him, honestly. So we'll come back to Susan and Sydney later. So Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki. It was January of 1969, and Tony was renting a room in a guest house on Standish Street. And the woman he was renting it from introduces him to two young ladies who were also staying there, Pat and Marianne. They were visiting from Providence, Rhode Island. The girls met in college, and Pat was now a second-grade teacher, and Marianne was still in school, but she hoped to become a teacher, too. The bathroom near the room that they're renting was crowded, and there was one closer to Tony's room. So the woman who owns, like, the guest house, whatever, asks Tony if it's cool if the girls use that restroom. And he's like, yeah, and you can even hang out in my room and get ready while you're down here. So, yeah, he, like, immediately makes friends with them and even helps them bring their stuff in from their car. So the girls get ready in his room, and he's, like, out doing something. When he comes back, he finds a wet towel on his bed, and he's, like, pissed off. Because 
I don't know if you remember, I said earlier, he had like some unrealistic house cleaning standards. So he feels disrespected by this towel and thinks the girls now owe him. So he wants a ride. So he goes to their room and he leaves a note um, asking them to give him a ride to pick up his paycheck. So the girls are out. They make friends while they're out. These friends are nice people. They even make sure that the girls make it back to the guest house. So we have like, there's, there's some like real concrete timelines and other people involved in the Pat and Marianne story. So they get back, they find the note and they're like, sure, we'll give them a ride. So Saturday, January 25th, 1969 is the last time anyone ever saw Pat and Marianne again. The next morning, the woman who owned the guest house found a note in the girl's room saying that they decided to check out early. The difference between the disappearance of Pat and Marianne and all the other girls who vanished after being with Tony is that these weren't young girls who just ran away from home. They were adult women with jobs and relationships, and they were both about 23 or 24 at the time that their path crossed with Tony Costas. People missed them. People came looking for them, and that would be Tony's downfall. That and Pat's Volkswagen. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that Tony made a mistake that would cause the whole thing to unravel. That was it. When Pat's boyfriend Bob couldn't get a hold of her Sunday night, he got concerned. On Monday evening, with still no word from her, he called Pat's parents. They hadn't heard from her either. Bob was all the way in California, but he was on his way back to Rhode Island to visit her when all this went down. When the Walshers hadn't heard from their daughter either, he was probably like still three days away from Massachusetts at that point, but her dad filed a missing persons report. The police tried to tell him, like, hey, it's the 60s. This sort of thing happens all the time. People get flat tires, they don't have access to a payphone, but they were sure that the girls would turn up. But one police officer thought that this one might be different because... These were two stable adult women with responsibilities who just vanished, and that seemed weird to him. So he called the police in Provincetown and gave them the name and vehicle description. So the girls are in Rhode Island. Her dad reports are missing in Rhode Island. The cop in Rhode Island calls Massachusetts, where they last were, and tells them about it. They make a little note of it, but tell them that no missing person reports have been made yet. Marianne Wysocki's parents hire a private investigator And he honestly doesn't really find out much. The girls had been missing like a week before there was like a break in the story. A local man named Carl who lived near the Truro woods sees this blue Volkswagen Beetle parked off of a dirt road in a small clearing in a cemetery by his house. So he gets out and he goes to look at the car and it has Rhode Island plates and there's no sign of anyone. He goes to the police station to report the car because he thinks it's weird. Carl takes the officer to the abandoned vehicle and they find a note on the windshield that says out of gas. But the note wasn't there earlier when Carl first saw it. And he tells the officer that. So Truro, where this happens and Provincetown are only four miles apart, but they didn't talk to each other. So they don't know. Yeah, it was the sixties. So they don't know that. Rhode Island's called Provincetown and told them about these missing girls. So they're, like, not connecting the dots. So right now, Provincetown has missing girls from Rhode Island. Rhode Island knows about it, and Truro has a car, but they know nothing about the girls. So Tony ends up moving the car out of the woods and takes it to Boston with the help of some of his friends. With no news and frustrated family members, Massachusetts State Police gets involved. Officers in Boston get this alert that they need to be on the lookout for this blue Volkswagen, and... 
Not long after that, someone spots it. But he only had orders to look for it and nothing else. Not to question a driver, not to pull them over, not to, like, tow it or anything. Just, like, take a note of this car. So that's what he does. But he makes a note of where it's parked, at least. But that's it. And the car is parked outside of Vinny's apartment, which is Tony's little brother. So... The cops ask him about it, and he's like, it's my brother's car, but I haven't seen him for a few days. The next day, the cop is patrolling, and he sees the car again in the same spot, and he, like, makes a note of it. And then he sees a guy. He's doing his job now. He's doing his job, but, like, they just gave poor instructions. So he even, like, notates an individual he sees get in and out of the car, which was later determined to be Tony, but he still has no orders to do anything about it. So he doesn't even know that this car belongs to a missing woman. He's just looking at a car and there's this guy in and out of it. So the next day, the car is gone. When Pat's boyfriend finally makes it into town, he immediately starts asking questions Mm -hmm. and he finds out where the girl stayed and he talks to the woman who owns it. And she tells him about the note that she found about the girls leaving earlier and also about the very similar note she found the day before where Tony asked for a ride. And that's when it all starts to unravel. On where were the co- Why didn't the cops ask these questions? Yeah, like the boyfriend had to do it? I don't know. Because they thought it's They'll the 60s. Just turn yeah. Yeah. So on February 7th, Provincetown and Truro PD finally talk to each other. And the officer who originally saw the beetle in the woods tells them, like, hey, I'll take you right to this car. But as you know, the car's gone. The car's in Boston. Mm-hmm. So they arrive at the location and they find all these papers from the car, including like insurance and registration with the name Patricia Walsh. And they also find this out of gas note and an empty gas can. Mm. What car owner tears up their own papers and like throws them out. So this to them was like the first red flag. And they decide that they're going to organize a search party in the woods. So they wander into the overgrown woods, like 20 minutes or so. And about 10 minutes off the road, they see this area that's slightly sunken in. And it's four feet long and about two feet wide. And it looks to have been recently disturbed. They saw a piece of green fabric sticking out of the soil. And it was an army duffel bag that looked to have blood on it. So they start digging. And about a foot down, they find something. A human hand. And they pull it out. And they pull out body parts piece by piece. An arm, a leg, another arm, a torso that was severed at the belly button. Oh, my. Legs. And skin from the butt had been entirely removed that was never found. What? Then inside of a plastic bag, they found a head. The woman, whoever she was, had been beaten. Her face bruised and teeth missing. The torso also had large pieces of skin removed or peeled back. But... It wasn't the body of Patricia Walsh or Marianne Wysocki. But now police knew that they had another missing girl on their hands. And this one had been murdered. When the news spread, Susan Perry's mom finally filed that missing person report. It had been more than six months since anyone had seen her daughter. So, like, they just went to the car location. And that's when they're like, something's up here. And they just, like... Just happened upon... Yes. A grave. Yeah. So... Pat's boyfriend, Bob, and Marianne's boyfriend, Gary, went to the guest house to look around. And Tony had never, like, officially checked out, but the owner lets them see Tony's room. Mm -hmm. And inside they find clothing that belonged to Pat and Marianne and a hairdryer. Because they were getting ready in there. Yeah, so 
then people start really suspecting like Tony knows something, right? Um, and he hears about this from his mom. She's like, hey, the cops have been asking questions. And Tony, who is completely delusional, calls the police himself. This is a pattern. Yeah. He's like, I'm in Vermont, but I want to come back to Provincetown to clear things up. And the cop's like, what's the rush? And Tony says, I have their car. Tony admits right then to being in possession of the girl's Volkswagen. What? Why wouldn't he just ditch the car? And so the author of the book says, she says, she says, quote, one of the ironies of the entire Costa case is that had he not been greedy and wanting to keep Patricia Walsh's car, he in all likelihood would have walked away from the murders, all of them. Yes, he had met the women at the guest house, but so had several others. Yes, he had a few of their belongings in his room, but he could have said that the women left them there when they were getting ready and using the adjoining bathroom. Yes, they gave him a ride, but he could have said they dropped him off anywhere he wanted and never saw them again. But Tony wanted that spiffy car. End quote. So that was a it was, was like a smoking gun. Sweet car in that time it was a Beetle, right? Yeah, and it was like pretty new. It was like two years old or something. So when questioned by police about how he came into possession of the car, his story kept changing. He claimed that he bought the car from them, this virtually brand new bug, for $900, but then later said he never actually paid her for it. The police finally told him weeks into the search that he was a suspect and that the whole thing would be cleared up if they could just get in contact with the girls. And then almost immediately, a bogus telegram gets delivered to Cecilia's apartment, addressed to Tony from Pat and Marianne. And Tony had obviously sent it to himself right after the police said that, and that's when they knew, like... Ugh. This is like he fell right into their trap because it wasn't even that clever. No, he was, he was so dumb. delusional. He, I truly think he thought he was not going to get caught. So they need to stick it to him, I guess. They're like super suspicious of him, but there's a difference between what you know and what you can, can prove or whatever. So police bring in Marsha, the girl that he accidentally shot in the back with the arrow. And they ask her to show them exactly where this happened. The weed bush? Oh, no. Yeah. And it was only about a half a mile from where the car was abandoned. So they decide to do another search party. And this time they bring in canines. You probably don't remember, but in our Ben McDaniel episode, which is a really long time ago, we talk about how cadaver dogs are not that reliable. That they're really good in a lab setting, but in a field there are so many variables that you can't control that you never know what's going to happen. But the dog starts going crazy and he's like going through some like underbrush and this cop who's accompanying him is watching him and there's this leather strap sticking out from the dirt and it's a purse and then they find a gold earring he does like a really bad job of burying things i i don't know if it's like i feel like he's just well with the person earring i think the girl might have been running and she dropped stuff because it wasn't in the grave like so there's an earring and there's the purse. And then right around that, they see an outline of a recently dug hole. And they start digging. 18 inches down or so, they find a human hand. And then they pull a severed head from the hole. And they recognize the face from a missing person photo. It was Marianne Wysocki. They pulled the rest of her body from the hole. It had been cut into five pieces. But... As they laid the body parts onto the ground, they realized that there must be another grave because her left leg was missing. A short distance away, a park ranger finds soft soil and starts digging. Again, 18 inches down, they find body parts. First, they found the lower half of a female body, and then they pulled out a torso and arms and a head. It was Patricia Walsh. 
But that wasn't it. Underneath Pat's body, they found another one. But this one was carefully laid out, equating the body to an Egyptian tomb. Police then went to arrest Tony, and they found him at his brother Vinny's apartment, where he at first tried to pretend to be Vinny, but they had actually already encountered Vinny, and they knew that it was Tony. So while he's undergoing psychiatric evaluations, they were able to identify the two other bodies in the woods as Susan Perry and Sidney Monson. Pretty quickly, Tony decides to create a fake character to try to pin it all on, some guy named Chuck Hansen. He even wrote Avis from jail and asked her to accuse other people of being the murderer and claim to know this Chuck guy, but she wouldn't do it. Finally, she like... He's like really bad at covering his own track. He even lies about Chuck to his legal team, telling him that that's the guy that they need to find and question him about where his... uh, Like, where he was when Pat and Marianne went missing, and then they'd solve it once they, like, got this Chuck. Yeah, so... After 35 days of psyche vows, none of the 13 doctors who met with him found him psychotic or criminally insane. They said he was just a manipulative narcissist. The most thorough evaluation came from a guy named Dr. Harold Williams in Boston, who worked for the mental hospital with the reputation of being the best facility in the country at the time. And he called Tony evil, saying, quote, I felt like the devil was watching me from Costa's side of the table, end quote. This mysterious Chuck Hansen was never found. Surprise, surprise. And then Tony started naming all these friends who could have possibly killed the girls, like this frenemy named Corey Devereaux. But he ended up having a solid alibi and passed three polygraphs. He's trying to throw everybody else. Anybody. It just couldn't be him. In 1969, while preparing for trial, Tony's mom died from a brain aneurysm, and he took that about as hard as one could expect. In May of 1970, his trial began. Instead of trying him for all four murders, they decided to just try him with Marianne and Pat's because he had their car and it was like the smoking gun. Obviously, he killed the others because Pat's body shared a shallow grave with one of them, but I think they needed a more definite conviction. So they went with the two that they had the like concrete link with. Yeah. Before testimony began, the jurors went into the woods to see the burial sites. What? I know. I didn't know that they did that's cool. Jury field trips? Yeah. When it was over, the jury took only six hours to find Tony guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He wrote to his attorney in jail and said that he was actually the victim in all of this, saying, wow. quote, I am not a murderer. I am instead a victim, not a victim a of a drug-pushing doctor and ultimately drugs. This sounds like an Accutane defense. I'm yeah. sick of it. On May 12, 1974, Tony was found dead in his cell, hanging from the bars by a belt he had made in leather he shop. Killed himself? His death was ruled a suicide, though many people believe that other prisoners actually killed him. I feel like this has already been pretty graphic, but there are actually a lot more details about gunshots and injuries to the bodies than I told you. It's been speculated that Tony committed acts of cannibalism and necrophilia with these women's bodies. <gasps> He was sometimes called the Cape Cod Cannibal or the Cape Cod Vampire because of bite marks on some victims and the removal of some hearts. He was indeed a sick man, and the horrendous things he did makes it even harder for me to believe that I had never heard about him. If you're interested in learning more about the story and Tony's victims in life, check out the book The Babysitter, My Summer with a Serial Killer by Liza Rodman. There are also findagrave.com memorials for Susan Perry, Sidney Monson, Patricia Walsh, and Marianne Wysocki. And 
in my creeping, I found that there's a Facebook group called Provincetown in the 70s and Avis posts in it. And you can see pictures of Tony and her three kids and all that stuff from this time period. Oh, I like Avis. It's weird. But I a TV series about Tony is also in the works, and in January of 2021, I saw that Robert Downey Jr.'s production company acquired the rights to a book series called Helltown, which focuses on people's obsession with Tony Costa. So that's coming out soon, people too. have an obsession? I didn't even know he was around. I didn't even know he existed, so and there was really like... behind the curve on this, yeah. but thank you for catching me up. Thank you for listening to Sideline Slits. If you like what you hear, please drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or generally rave about us on your favorite streaming service. Positive reviews help us out a ton. A special thank you goes out to Chris Petro for this episode's music and editing. We love hearing from our listeners, so if you'd like to share comments, reactions, or thoughts on the show, you can find us at facebook.com slash sidelinesleuths.